This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm your host, Daryl Chetka. I'm a general internist at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. We're going to devote today's podcast to one of the most common healthcare problems seen by primary care providers, hyperlipidemia. With me today is Dr. Stephen Kopetsky, a physician in the Department of Cardiovascular Diseases. Thanks for coming, Steve. Thanks for having me, Daryl. Let's start with non-pharmacologic management of hyperlipidemia. I get a fair number of patients for one reason or another don't want to be started on medication, and they want to know, well, what can I do before I try medication? And I know there are a few things, so let's start with that. And how about diet first? Are there specific diets that are especially helpful in uh, improving the lipid profile? Uh, that's an interesting question. There are diets that are helpful. And a lot of the studies have shown that obviously trans fats, saturated fats will raise your LDL cholesterol. Coconut oil will raise your LDL cholesterol. However, when they give these studies or do these studies and give these diets, they can lower their LDL, but it doesn't necessarily lower their event rates because of what you're eating instead. A lot of processed foods, uh, vegetable oils that ha- have no anti-inflammatory properties. So what's actually shown to be the most helpful is um, certain compounds that will lower your LDL cholesterol. Things like stanols and sterols, viscous soluble fiber like psyllium, and uh, oat bran or oatmeal. Apples are very good. Uh, Eating uh, uh, olive oil won't necessarily lower your cholesterol, but it helps you live longer and have less events and things like that. So clearly the diet plays a big role, but it's kind of not quite what we thought. Where does, where does one find stanols, and where, how do we incorporate those into our diet? Yeah, stanols and sterols are very common. They're, uh, one common source is soybeans, but you'd have okay. to eat a couple of bushels of soybeans a day to get enough sterols. That's difficult. It's tough to do. So uh, what you can do is get them as supplements. You can buy them as uh, over-the-counter pills that have stanols and sterols in them. You can buy them in juices and in, uh, in things like yogurts or uh, chews. Uh, but in general, the, the pills are just as good. But take them while you, when you're eating something because it helps block cholesterol absorption. Same with the, uh, uh, same with the oat bran. Okay. Are there some margarine-like spreads also that contain uh, sterols, stanols? There are margarine spreads, and they will help lower uh, the LDL cholesterol. I don't push them heavily just because they are margarine, have a lot of right. other processed things in them. Okay. Well, how about exercise? Does that uh, play a role in the management of hyperlipidemia? Uh, exercise is very important in, in hyperlipidemia, but not for the reasons people think. They say, gee, doctor, I'm exercising, my LDL hasn't gone down. I say, you know, LDL doesn't help here. It is not helped by your exercise. What exercise really helps is two things, HDL and triglycerides. In fact, there's a great old study I quote to patients all the time. It was done in 1972. Seven men had, uh, had triglycerides of 235. All we did was get them exercising. And... Uh, pretty vigorous exercise, but in four days, their triglycerides came from 235 down to 100. So exercise actually eats up the triglycerides. It's an it's a energy source for your muscles. The um, interval exercise is very good for HDL, to raise your HDL, which is, of course, very important to do. And interval exercise meaning? Interval meaning that you go hard for a minute or two, not longer than a couple of minutes, because if you go too hard, you can't go that long. Secondly, that uh, you, uh, once you warm up, you go hard, and uh, then in between intervals, you get your breath back, so you can go just as hard next time. 
And I tell people when they're doing, say, 30 minutes of exercise, try to do four or five intervals in there because okay. that will help you uh, a lot more than just the standard exercise, which is fine, you know, walking on a treadmill or jogging, but the intervals are really much more helpful. Okay. And when we're discussing exercise with our patients, how much exercise should we tell them to do? How many minutes? Yeah, that's, uh, that's a very interesting point also because there are two parts to exercise I tell patients. One is being vigorously active. One is not being sedentary. And it's very interesting that those two things do something different. So when you're vigorously active, uh, that actually helps your uh, endothelium. That helps your vasculature open and close, things like that. When you are not sedentary, that helps more the metabolic components, the insulin sensitivity, the, uh, the triglycerides, the HDL, things like that. And even if you get up for an hour in the morning, studies have shown exercise from five to six very vigorously. If you sit for the rest of the day, you may as well not have exercised. It's almost that, that much of a difference. So I tell folks, do your exercise. You ought to try to get the ideal is 150 minutes a week of exercise. People are busy. Uh, they can't go. So if you can't do anything uh, for that day, don't not do anything. Instead, do 10 minutes with three intervals. That has been shown three times a week. So 10 minutes, three times a week with vigorous intervals has been shown to start to reduce your heart attack and death rate. And I don't care how busy you are, we should all have 10 minutes three times a week. Yeah. So aim for 30 minutes five times a week. If you can't do that, yeah. less is still beneficial. Less is still beneficial. So you got a very busy day or you're traveling, something like that, still just do 10 minutes, three intervals. Even in your hotel room, you can do planks and you know, push-ups and sit-ups sure. and things. What about the patient who has trouble doing vigorous exercise? Maybe they have some arthritis or other reasons where they can't do some really vigorous exercise. Yeah. Is uh, less active or less vigorous exercise beneficial? Yes, just any movement is beneficial. And if you look at the, you know, there's a big surge now, people are saying, well, stand up, have a standing desk. You know, you look at the difference between sitting, standing, and being active. The big difference is, uh, you know, is the, is the being active. It's the sitting and standing aren't all that much uh, different. But if you, could, but, uh, if you can do some walking, um, I, and there's a couple of ways to look at it. One is if you have a joint that doesn't work very well. Say your left knee, you just can't, I can't walk, doctor. I'll say that's okay, but you have you know 200 joints in your body. If one of them doesn't work, try to use the other 199 or something like sure. that. Yeah. And anything you can do, sedentary bikes, you know, using the arms, ellipticals, whatever works, just something is so much better than nothing. Because this is the way we used to do our bodies, you know, in the past, in the eons ago. We didn't sit in the cave all day and try to, uh, you know, try to watch a TV or do video games. We'd get up, try to find something to eat, and not be killed. So we'd do intervals. We'd walk and then run for a short distance or climb a tree or something. And that's exactly what we need to do now. Yeah. And usually we can find some type of exercise where we can work around the patient's impairment, uh, some non-weight-bearing exercise, yeah. stationary bike or swimming sure. or rowing or things like that. Okay. Mm -hmm. Mayo Clinic offers medical education conferences at locations around the country and the globe. Learn from medical experts and network with colleagues at exciting destinations. Plan your next CME course by visiting ce.mayo.edu. Well, when we see patients, I think we concentrate most on lowering the LDL cholesterol. Uh, and we don't really have 
really good pharmacologic therapy for increasing the HDL. So how do we approach somebody that has a low HDL cholesterol? Mm -hmm. First, try to find out if it's been a, a lifelong thing. See if you get any old records. If they had uh, HDLs you know, in their 30s, they were like nice, 50 and 60. Now they're in their 20s and 30. You know something's changed. You know, they're probably their, their activity regime has changed. But if they've been low all their life, then they really are at increased risk. Because LDL is a monolith. It just, it's a transport mechanism of cholesterol around the body. HDL does at least five or six very important things, of which one is reverse cholesterol transport. But if you have a low HDL, then you have low reverse cholesterol transport, that's for sure. So anything you can do to raise that. Now, we've done studies where we actually, with niacin, where we've raised HDL, but it didn't lower cardiovascular events. In fact, when given with a statin, niacin seems to actually increase your risk of intracranial events, bleeds, things like that. So first off, niacin with statins is a no-no. Second off, niacin by itself can, can raise HDL some, but we haven't really shown any benefit of that. The better is probably to be more active physically, and that's genetically determined how quickly you respond and how far your HDL will rise depending on your activity. The other uh, medication we, uh, that is used a lot is fibrates. Fibrates um, have not been shown really to help that much. Uh, they, they will help your numbers, your HDL go up, but they don't really seem to help the event rates that much. And again, fibrates given with statins increase uh, uh, you know, intolerance and side effects. So uh, by, uh, by giving them together, I'm not sure we're getting much out of it, and we try to avoid those two. Yeah. So we really get back to exercise, aerobic exercise. And I've actually seen a fair number of patients who really get serious with exercise and start uh, putting in 30, 45, 60 minutes per day of mm -hmm. uh, aerobic activity. Mm -hmm. And I've seen some major increases in the HDL cholesterol. So it is yeah. very effective. Yeah, it can be, and it's, I think it's genetically determined because some people will r raise their HDL very quickly. Some people will take a long time. One other thing is if you smoke, if you stop smoking within about six weeks, your HDL will be up significantly. How about gender differences in HDL? Yeah. Gender differences, uh, you know, women do have uh, a little higher HDL than men. Obviously, the norm for them is higher. The, um, there's, we tend to merge as we go through life. And, and so, uh, actually, um, the women, uh, while they're protected, it looks like it's the good HDL. It, it can't be replicated by giving them estrogens or things like that. That just doesn't, doesn't give you the good type of HDL. People always ask about alcohol because alcohol, small amounts, will raise HDL. I don't recommend it if you have a problem with it or if you have a, um, your uh, personal issues, et cetera. But if you're drinking some alcohol, a very small amount can actually help. Maybe three ounces of wine, you know, six ounces of beer can raise HDL, and it, and it appears to be the good kind of HDL. You mentioned the good kind. So there's more than one type of HDL cholesterol. Yeah, HDL actually, some will uh, deal with anti-tumor, some deals with endothelial function, keeping our uh, function, some deals with the platelets and clotting. So it does different things. Uh, and I say good, it, I mean, they're all good, but um, they, they're not the reverse cholesterol transport, which we all assume is what we want to raise our HDL for. I've had a few patients, I think they're usually women, who have had an unusually high HDL, 120, 130. Yeah. Is that uh, is it all beneficial to them, or is there? Yeah, risks? that's another very uh, good point. In that, some genetic studies have shown that if you're born with a high HDL, like 100, 120, it is not beneficial to you. Uh, I have told many women in my career, "Gee, your HDL is 120. Don't worry about 
they have gone out of their way to find me later, you know, by <laughs> email or carrier pigeon mail, something like that, to say, you know, you told me that 20 years ago and I had a heart attack. And what it turns out is that the, uh, the genetically high HDLs probably aren't, uh, usually aren't the reverse cholesterol transport. And so if you have that, and remember Framingham, the old Framingham equation used to take points off your risk if your HDL was real high. They don't do that anymore. <laughs> And uh, for that reason. So if your HDL is really high from birth, uh, still pay attention to all the other risk factors. Okay. Let's go back to diet just a bit. And um, you referred to trans fats a little while ago. What's the difference between saturated fats and trans fats and their ultimate effect on our lipids? Yeah. And I'm glad you're uh, asking again about diet. As you probably know, diet now is the number one risk factor for uh, cardiovascular disease for early death and, and uh, early disease in the United States. It's passed up uh, lipids, passed up cholesterol, smoking, etc. The trans fats, which have been banned now this year, that you shouldn't have them in our foods anymore uh, in the United States, they will raise your LDL significantly. Uh, saturated fats also will raise uh, LDL, and uh, there are uh, certain saturated fats, if you look at butter, look at lard, look at coconut, they all raise your LDL. There are, uh, this doesn't mean you shouldn't eat them, but it should be in small amounts. And so what's fascinating to me is that all these diets that uh, have actually lower LDL, depending on what else you eat with it, doesn't lower your cardiac event rate. What really does lower your cardiac event rate is the Mediterranean diet. And Mediterranean, though, it's a very specific one. Because I'll tell patients Mediterranean, they say, oh, well, yeah, I, I eat Mediterranean. I put some, you know, olive oil in my french fries last week, you know. That it's a very specific diet that's been studied in tens of thousands of patients. It has 10 do's and 4 don'ts. Uh, the do's are primarily olive oil, fruits, vegetables, fish, uh, nuts, and legumes. And I have to tell men nuts are, you know, 12 almonds a day, not 12 handfuls of almonds, you know. And the don'ts are red meat, which anything, uh, you know, any uh, dark meat, poultry is red meat. Any white meat, poultry with the skin on is red meat. And then everything else basically is red meat, even if it's grass-fed or, you know, deer or venison or something like that. You get three ounces or a deck of cards a day. Uh, three servings of processed foods a week, which is tough. Uh, get a pad of butter a day, which is hard for people like us that live in Minnesota where we have great uh, dairy products. And then um, a very uh, only one uh, can of cola because cola has a phosphoric acid. Doesn't matter if it's diet or regular. And that that diet, uh, when you eat it, it uh, and I tell people they have to migrate to it because we have, you know, so much of our eating over half of our eating per day is mindless. We just do it without thinking, and we do what we've done all our life. And it really takes a, a lot of effort to change that. But if you follow that diet, it lowers your heart attack and your stroke rate, it lowers Alzheimer's, it lowers macular degeneration, lowers arthritis, lowers diabetes, the only diet shown to lower female sexual dysfunction and erectile dysfunction. And uh, so it does a lot of good things, probably because it's anti-inflammatory, probably because the oils, the mono and saturated oils in the olive oil and the nuts, avocados, is a very anti-inflammatory oil as compared to the, some of the oils we think are good, quote-unquote, the corn oil, the, you know, et cetera, the, uh, that are very highly processed and don't have the anti-inflammatory properties. Okay. Let's finish up by talking about uh, supplements. Um, you mentioned stanols. Um, how about such things as 
garlic, uh, CoQ10. Mm -hmm. These are things that have been promoted in the press. Uh, are they a benefit? Yeah. The, oh, the latest one uh, to take a big hit was fish oil. Yes. In that fish oil, I, I was a big believer in fish oil because uh, it does so many things. You know, it lengthens your telomeres so your cells live longer. It, uh, it's hard to eat good fish up here in the Midwest sometimes. But uh, the big studies and uh, an actual meta-analysis of every individual patient, uh, not just the overall results, but every individual patient showed it really didn't benefit. So I think the take-home message there is not that fish oil is, is not helpful. It is that what used to be we would have a, a, a good lifestyle, eating fish three or four times a week, cannot be substituted by taking a little pill and then doing whatever else you want. So the fish oil is not that beneficial. The um, certain things are not good. They're actually bad for you. Uh, beta carotene, uh, high dose vitamin E and vitamin C. I'm not talking about multivitamin, but higher dose uh, individual pills because uh, you'll actually increase cardiac event rates. Things like CoQ10 are very interesting. You know, CoQ10, all the studies that are given for statins uh, intolerance because the, uh, when you take a statin, your CoQ10 levels go down. All the studies where the patient knows they're taking CoQ10, they do better. They feel better. But once you blind them and say, we're not telling you what you're taking, and don't blind study, it's no benefit. So I think that uh, it's, it's a pretty safe supplement. If people want to take it, it's okay with me. But I, I just don't think it's going to help them much. Yeah. I know we used to recommend CoQ10 in patients who had problems with myalgias and uh, statins. Mm -hmm. And uh, even in that situation, really no benefit? Really, no, yeah, and that was the thing that was kind of surprising to me because clearly your CoQ10 levels do go down when you take a statin. But you can make that up by eating a lot of leafy green vegetables and things like that, which hopefully people will do. Okay. All right, we've been talking with Dr. Stephen Kopetsky from the Department of Cardiovascular Diseases at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Thank you, Steve. Thank you, Darrell. Many of you have asked how you can experience Mayo Clinic medical education firsthand. See our full catalog of live and online CME courses at ce.mayo.edu. If you've enjoyed Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts, please subscribe. Stay healthy and see you next week. Mm -hmm.